It is good to worship with you this morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, We continue our series in Job, and this morning we consider the false requirement. And at at the outset, I'll tell you what the false requirement is. It is that your performance as a faithful follower dictates how your life will play out. That's simply untrue. Job has suffered in a way that most have not. He feels, as someone once said, that he is one man, alone, and betrayed. In Job's case, betrayed by God, spouse, and friends. He, Job, was the best man. We've talked about that the last few weeks in Job. The best man of the East. His heart and his life were proof that God is real. That God's promises are true. That God actually does change people's hearts by the Spirit of God. And of course, back in chapter 1, the accuser, Satan, challenged these truths about God. And Job's life became a, a whirlwind as God restrained but allowed Satan to attack Job. As the accuser would really find out and as we would find out as readers. Are there really true faithful followers out there on this earth? That was Satan's question and accusation against God. So Satan questioned God's character. Job's wife misunderstood it. Job, however, has remained steadfast, faithful, and trusting in God despite dark thoughts and dark words that we covered last week. God's character, again, is misconstrued and misunderstood, this time by Job's friend Eliphaz in chapters 4 through 5, which we'll cover this morning. We will listen to Eliphaz, his disposition, his friendship, and his insight, and what we will see in these chapters is what our main idea is this morning. And it's simply this, our counsel is flawed. It is deeply flawed. Eliphaz, we gather from the rest of our historical account and conversation in later chapters, Eliphaz is probably a generation or two older than Job. Eliphaz is probably also the oldest of the group because he speaks first. His posture is very tactful uh, as the first of the friends to comment. He is gentle in spots and even encouraging. And he's probably a father or a grandfather figure to Job, which shows us that Titus 2 and the rest of Scripture maintains this testimony. Older men and women speak into the lives of younger men and women. Well, may it be true of us, Lakewood. Older people find younger people to befriend, disciple, and encourage. But Eliphaz's poetic response covers the entire chapters of 4 and 5. And I'll show a slide here on the screen that lays out how his counsel to Job is broken down according to one writer. There's something of a pattern that you'll notice in these chapters. And we'll be focusing this morning on the center of that argument in that counsel found in Job 4, 12 through 21. And if you'll turn there, as you turn there, in chapter 4, before I read that section, 
allow me to point out a few items in Eliphaz's response that will give us some context. So in chapter 4, verse 5, Eliphaz accuses Job of being impatient, the text says. In chapter 4, verse 8, Eliphaz essentially says, you get what you deserve. You sow what you reap. Chapter 5, verse 1, Eliphaz points out that Job has no mediator to help or to answer him. In chapter 5, verse 8, Eliphaz counsels Job to repent and to seek God. Starting in Job 5.18, Eliphaz unknowingly speaks of the actual blessing that will come to Job in the end. So, with that context, read with me our passage, chapter 4, verse 12 to 21. This is Eliphaz speaking. Now, a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me, and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die, and that without wisdom? This is God's word. So first, in our passage, we see an intimate claim, an intimate claim. And I get this from verses 12 through 16. So up to this point, Eliphaz, academics suggest, has espoused a kind of retribution theology. Again, you, you get what you deserve. And it's a very simple understanding of God's working in the world. You do bad you get bad. You do good, you get good. And these two chapters are one long 47-verse poem from Eliphaz, essentially making this claim. You are guilty, Job. You did bad, so you get bad. Well, here at the beginning of our middle section of the poem, we see something else. Eliphaz doesn't just point to a kind of retribution theology in verses 7 and 8. Or he doesn't simply point to what he has seen or what others have seen around him. He now seeks to cement his argument. Job has been crying out. And Eliphaz comes and cements his argument by unveiling a revelation that he received 
that has given him understanding on the whole situation. Now, we should say this at the outset. This kind of scene is somewhat common in the scriptures, especially the Old Testament. Prophets of old receiving a word of revelation and then taking that word and speaking it to those who needed to hear it. And at first glance, that may seem to be what Eliphaz, our friend Eliphaz, is doing. But a closer look, a closer look reveals something totally different. So whether it's Jonah, Jeremiah, Abraham, or the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, when God revealed a word to his messenger to share it with others, it had some of these qualities. First, prophets were able to communicate clearly what they saw. Prophets received a very clear word from God. Prophets normally spoke as though God had commissioned them. They were speaking not their words, but his words. Prophets had very specific messages. Now, let's look back at our friend Eliphaz and compare. Verse 12. Eliphaz, his revelation was a secret, stealthy whisper rather than a clear command. Well, look again at verse 15 and 16. A spirit glided past his face, but unlike the prophets, Eliphaz couldn't see it clearly. Look again at verse 17, and we'll discuss this more in a moment, but his message is vague and not specific. And and finally, in this passage, there's no mention of God's voice, God's presence, or God's commands. So no doubt, this is some kind of spiritual experience. No doubt, Eliphaz, he heard and he saw something. No doubt he was convinced that this voice and this fuzzy sighting was some kind of confirmation and insight into Job's suffering and dilemma. But here's the central concern with all of this. Eliphaz is counseling his friend and his appeals are his own experience and his own secret knowledge. Oh, Job, my friend, you don't quite see it right. You are suffering, you're crying out, but you're guilty. Let me tell you how I know you're guilty. I have a secret knowledge. Sounds very pretentious. And this is a worldview called Gnosticism. A worldview that says, I have something of the divine in me or revealed to me. I have secrets and a fuller perspective. I have what others cannot see. I have truth undiscernible to your eyes. My friends, this is true of our culture. And this is true of our church. Allow me to give you a few examples. Secret knowledge, Gnosticism. Some may say, I know how I feel and what my gender is. You don't. I know other people's sin better than they do. I know the heart motivations of the person I'm interacting with. 
I know what's going to happen with the stock market, American politics, and Minnesota Vikings football. I know. I had a revelation. But we see this in movies as well. Secret knowledge between the Jedi and the Sith in Star Wars. Secret knowledge that Hogwarts has that muggles do not in Harry Potter, children. Secret knowledge in a red or blue pill as Neo in the Matrix awakens to a hidden reality. Christians and non-Christians alike make many claims to knowledge. Usually our claims and knowledge in the church are about other people. Like Eliphaz, we may even say some things that are generally true. Where we get into trouble is when we base our opinions and preferences and convictions on secret knowledge. Eliphaz, he doesn't say, thus says the Lord. He doesn't tell Job, let me show you what his word says, or let me faithfully communicate what God has declared. None of that. That is what separates ourselves, Eliphaz, from prophets and apostles of old. We haven't received direct divine revelation with certainty where we can turn around and tell others something other than what God has made plainly known in his word. The faithful revelation of Jesus, truth, and how we should operate in this world is found in the scriptures, period. Lakewood, like Eliphaz, much of our well-meaning counsel, advice, and language has too much of our own authority and not God's. We point to experiences or feelings or a hunch that we might have about people or circumstances. Rather than saying the words of scripture, the words that have the power to heal, to sharpen, and to pierce. We resort to platitudes and hot takes that aren't grounded in chapter and verse. May God protect us, Lakewood, from giving this kind of counsel. May God protect us from saying what God has not made clear. May God protect us from claiming inside knowledge. Well, next we see not just an intimate claim on knowledge, but also a canned truism. A canned truism. I get this directly from verses 17 through 21. Now, let's assume for a moment, brothers and sisters, that Eliphaz has the secret knowledge. Let's assume he knows. Let's say his experience, his common sense, and this spooky encounter where the hair on his arms was raised. Let's say it was God. Or even if it wasn't God, let's just say his correct or his information was correct. In these verses, 17 through 21, we get to the content of his revelation. <laughs> okay, Eliphaz, you have a revealed word. You have insight. You have knowledge. Oh, great, Eliphaz, what wisdom would you give us? Read verse 17 again. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Essentially, the great mystery and revelation from Eliphaz is this. 
Man is sinful. Eliphaz is, again, making a false requirement that your performance in life dictates how God treats you. And this is also a classic, classic truism. Well, what is a truism? I had to look it up. Uh, Dictionary says this. A truism is an undoubted or self-evident truth, one too obvious for mention. Now, brothers and sisters, you understand this far more than you realize. So let me give you an example of some truisms. In my best John Madden voice, the team that scores the most points will win. If you drop that glass vase, it will break. Money doesn't buy happiness. It could be worse. Minnesota sports will disappoint you. These are self-evident truths where we collectively say, duh, yes, we know. So, Eliphaz, instead of offering some insightful revelation to his suffering, instead of offering some reason for the mess and the cry of his heart, remember Job with all those why questions? Eliphaz has this great revelation, and he doesn't answer any of those. Eliphaz says, the sky is blue, and you're a sinner. Thanks, friend. Thanks for pointing out the obvious. This is terrible counsel. And several times throughout this account, Job will confess the sinfulness of man. Job isn't claiming to not be a sinner. As we will see, he's claiming to be an innocent sufferer who doesn't deserve his circumstance in life. Which we know as outside observers to the heavenly court in Job 1, that it's true, that's correct, he doesn't deserve that. What's ironic here, my friends, is that Eliphaz's truism isn't even true. Yes, man is sinful, but there's an underlying question to it. Not just man is sinful, but here's the question. Is it possible? Is it possible for a sinful man to be right, pure, and accepted before the face of God? The answer is yes. But Eliphaz would answer no. So there's two significant things that I think our counselor fails to see as we read these chapters. And just by the way, when you read Job I mean, really the entire book, but but chapter 4 through 5 where we're in, when we read this long poem, I have to admit, I'm reading this saying, okay, what exactly is he saying here? I had to read this like 20 times. What what is Eliphaz saying? What does he get wrong? Because some of it seems to make a lot of sense. But there's two things Eliphaz fails to see. And the first is this. It is possible to be right before God by faith. It is possible. Have you shown up here this morning and maybe your performance is lacking in life? Did maybe you have a terrible week and you come with the question, is it possible for me to be right in God's eyes despite my terrible week? 
despite my sin, despite, despite my imperfection? You see, Job has been described in our narrative so far, and even by God himself, as a blameless, upright, God-fearing man who turns away from evil and prays and follows God. Eliphaz doesn't understand grace. God being pleased with our imperfect faith. God doesn't simply measure us according to performance. That's the false requirement. God looks at those like Job who are trusting in the Savior to come. Or God looks at us trusting in the Savior who has come. God looks at those trusting in the Savior and are pleased with them. Can man be pure before God? Yes, by faith in Christ. Eliphaz, he has no category for that. The second thing I would point out is this. Eliphaz is convinced. He's convinced he sees Job's situation perfectly. He assumes he sees Job's sin. He assumes he sees God's judgment on him. He even has a secret revelation, a, a, maybe even a gut feeling if it weren't a revelation, that could, seems to confirm everything in his mind. Eliphaz claims to see and understand more than he actually does. He doesn't know what he doesn't know. One writer this week was helpful for me, and he said this. We know something that the characters in the book do not. I wonder if it's possible if someone maybe has a perspective on our life and they see things that we don't. We know something that the characters in the book do not. It is absolutely not because Job has lost these qualities of faith that he is suffering, but because he possesses them so deeply. That's why he's suffering. Eliphaz has interpreted Job's situation exactly wrongly. But at the same time, we realize this. We also realize that it is entirely natural within Eliphaz's limited perspective for him to draw these terribly mistaken conclusions about Job. Eliphaz does not, Job, does not know Job's true state before God. And there is no way he can learn what he does not know. He is ignorant about his own ignorance. He has every reason to think Job's case is quite simple, and he expects his advice to be received gratefully by Job. Isn't that so often the case with us? We're ignorant of our own ignorance. We think we really know what's going on with someone or with something, but we don't. So here's the application for us this morning, Lakewood. Don't speak in half-truths, opinions, and truisms. They are unhelpful to the weary soul asking big questions of God in life, and quite honestly, they're often insulting. We also need to, in our counsel to others, recognize that we do not possess secret knowledge on the situation or on the heart of others and certainly not on the mysterious workings of God. We can speculate, 
We can form educated guesses, but we should only convictionally say and think what the Scripture says. No more and certainly no less. And when God does move you to speak, brothers and sisters, we don't speak in canned truisms. You are a sinner. God is good. Oh, it's okay. It'll be all right. That is far often too simple. Complexity and suffering requires clarity from God's word being spoken in grace. So we have in intimate claim a a canned truism. And in conclusion, we have a view of hearts. Um, I'd ask if you'd be willing to turn to the New Testament, John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Hear what the disciple John has to say about Jesus. Now, when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This passage may not seem to be an intimate connection to our story, when in fact it is and it points to the fulfillment of our story. What is clear with Eliphaz is that his words and his understanding of God's character in Job's heart is deeply flawed. Eliphaz gives counsel and thinks things without truly knowing the heart or truly knowing what Job is going through. Jesus, on the other hand, Jesus, whether it's a crowd of people who don't really trust him in John 2, a woman at a well, a rich young ruler, or countless of interactions with Pharisees of his day, Jesus knows the heart perfectly. And he knows yours too. Jesus knows what's true, what's true of the suffering heart. He knows what even well-meaning friends cannot see. Jesus not only knows the heart, but as the writer of Hebrews tells us, Jesus is sympathetic because he himself knows very intimately what it is to be tempted and to suffer in every respect. Jesus knows the heart. We don't. Your friends don't. But What implication does that have on us for a Monday? You know, tomorrow's Monday. Tomorrow we wake up to bad news about the Minnesota Vikings. Tomorrow we wake up to a life that we have to live with jobs and families and fracturing. Questions of life in which we don't know. If Jesus knows the heart, how does that serve me tomorrow? Well, kids... Kids, when your parents don't understand, Jesus does, and he has compassion. Parents, 
You don't know the motivation of your spouse's heart. But Jesus does. Students, friends may be far off, but Jesus is near. Suffering saints, the counsel you receive may be short-sighted and imperfect from your friends. But Jesus' counsel is far-reaching and eternal. Are you worried about the world that we live in? Me too. Jesus knows and is acting. Does someone need your counsel and wisdom? Then my friend, go to Christ. Go to Jesus who will give you insight from his spirit and the scriptures. The gospel, the good news of Jesus is that he lived, died, and rose again for the sins of those made in his image. The good news is that this Savior is nearer than any friend. You know your friends will disappoint you, right? Jesus is nearer than any friend. The good news is that this friend sympathizes, understands fully, and only offers words of life, clarity, and authority from his own lips. The good news is that as he resides in us, he enables us to graciously, wisely, and lovingly counsel others. Not through secret knowledge, and not through assumptions and opinions, but through the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Yes, our counsel is flawed, but our Savior is not. His counsel, His words, have the ability to mend the suffering heart. His counsel and His word orients our thinking rightly. The false requirement says your performance determines your life. Jesus says His performance is enough. He is enough. And it's Jesus' true counsel that informs even how we observe communion. I'll ask those that are serving communion to come forward at this time. The counsel of Jesus informs communion this way. Jesus knew that you and I as faithful followers of Christ would have seasons like Job in which we're crying out, confused by the things of this world. And he also knew that we would have many well-meaning friends, brothers and sisters. He knew we would have people at Lakewood Church that would give counsel and it'd be deeply flawed. Jesus knew that our relationships and our expectations of them would always fall short. Everyone in your life will fail you. So in Jesus' grand wisdom and divine design, he determined and established a remembrance and an ordinance to counsel you, to remind you of his word, his work, on your behalf. Communion is a counseling moment. 
where we look to the words in the life of Christ. We look to the one who broke his body and shed his blood so that our lives would be radically different. That's the counsel we need this morning, is it not? It is. So let me say this by way of just instruction and encouragement. If you are here and you have become a faithful follower of Christ, if Jesus is your Savior, this meal is for you. This meal is a remembrance for those declaring that Jesus died for my sins and rose again. Jesus is my counselor, my sweet and near friend. And I remember what he's doing, not just in the past, but today. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, he gives very stern warning to anyone who would take communion in a wrong way. So if you're here and you have not become a faithful follower of Christ, if you're considering Christianity, or you're here and your heart has deep, unrepentant sin in it, allow this to pass. Allow communion time to be an opportunity for you to reflect, to confess sin, and to consider Christ in a fresh way. Uh, Brothers, would you come and serve us, please? Brothers and sisters, What is the longing of our thirsty soul? Is it not in part to have a friend who would give us counsel that would warm our hearts? Is that not in part what the longing of our soul is? And is that not in part the ministry of Christ to us even this morning? So Jesus imparting counsel and encouragement to his friends in an upper room, knowing that they too would ask questions, knowing they too would need to reflect on the words of Christ, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, in a very mysterious way, he took the cup and his counsel, his encouragement was this cup represents my blood, this blood of a new covenant, a new promise, a new relationship. Drink this. Do this in remembrance of me. Short prayer. Father, our prayer this morning is that you would show yourself to be real and near and powerful and caring to us. Show us that Christ is the better friend. Show us that Christ is the true counselor. Lord, would you by your spirit give us great wisdom as we counsel others? Would the spirit of Christ reside in us so deeply that as we go out from this building, we live such a different kind of life? that we would live Christ, that we would be his hands and his feet, and that those who have never experienced the love or the counsel or the nearness or the warmth of Christ, that they would be brought near. Lord, impress these things on our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.